Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where we have a catchphrase. Hey, a sound effect. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a critic of no renown whatsoever, and with me as always is my intelligent co-host, William. Introduce yourself. Hi, my name is William Bibiani. I am a critic, and I, well, everyone calls me Bibbs. And uh, you know what? Whitney is a wonderful critic. He is a super oh, intelligent person. You. There's a reason he is my co-host, because I think he pushes me to become a better critic, and I think mm-hmm. his high standards uh, uh, are sometimes uh, a little much, but you know what? <laughs> you know what? Someone's got to have them, doesn't I was about it? to say. Someone's got to have them. If I don't have high standards, who will? There you go. That's actually not a bad catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs> I'm critically claimed. If we don't have high standards, who will? That's not bad, actually. I like <laughs> that. I've got a t-shirt with that one. There you go. Um, but uh, yeah, so this is our movie review podcast over the Critically Claimed Network, uh, and... Um, <laughs> This is a weird this is, episode. This is a take two. Yeah, we we recorded this entire episode uh, last Sunday night, and uh, I you know we recorded it. It was a long episode. We reviewed a whole bunch of movies. Uh, we reviewed the movies of F Nine, Werewolves Within, The Lansky, I Carry You With Me, An Unquiet Grave, False Positive, and The Sparks Brothers. Uh, and then you know I save the file. I go to bed. I wake up first thing in the morning, getting ready to edit, put the podcast out, and I open the file, and there's no audio. Oh no! I have no idea what I did. My theory <laughs> is I was just look as people who've listened to the podcast long enough uh, probably know. I don't get a lot of sleep, like to the point where it's probably oh, a problem. No, we we are both incredibly sleep deprived most of the time. Yeah, Whitney works exceedingly late, and then he has to get up and take care of you know his family, his child, and everything. And, I work my fingers to the bone on a lot of stuff, and I end up usually working until, like, 3 a.m. and then waking up at 7, and after a while, you can't really do that anymore, especially in your late 30s, so... You, you can do it. You, you start hallucinating, but, well, Okay, yeah. you technically can't do it, but it's ill-advised, and here, it leads to the problem, so my theory here, is... Here's my advice. Develop a drug habit. There you go. Thanks, that, That's very, good advice. That is, that is... We're not putting that on a t-shirt, and that is not no. the official stance of Critically Acclaimed. I, uh, I, I think they know I'm being sarcastic. Just so we're clear. <laughs> uh, but anyway, my, my my theory is I must have screwed something up when I was completely exhausted and falling asleep or, in, my, in my chair. Or there was a, an MP3 elf but maybe. who stole it. And, I mean, you know, my point is maybe I would have caught yeah. that sooner if I wasn't so exhausted. So okay. in any case, uh, we, we both got some sleep last night and now we're doing this first thing in the morning for once. Uh, <laughs> it's actually very difficult for us to work during the day just because of Whitney's schedule for the most part. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. mine. Uh, so, uh, we're going to try to do that a little bit more often. Maybe we'll both be a little bit more alert and, uh, that would be great for everybody. Imagine we start recording like when we're not dog tired and our, our podcast really starts to suffer. Yeah. Wouldn't like, people, <laughs> would people don't like us anymore? Wouldn't that, they, they, wouldn't they that like, be rough? They like us cause we're loopy and sleepy. Oh my God. That's so sad. Yeah. Bright eyed and bushy tailed and yeah. well, I'm actually still a little tired, but yeah. Let's go for it we're anyway. We're never going to be 100%. Well, what do you, what do you want to talk about well, first? I just now, that, s- now that we're here and recording. Yeah. I just want to getting... say, so it might be a little weird, but uh, uh, that we're like trying to cover material we've already covered before, mm-hmm. and that might be a little weird for us, but hopefully for you it'll be fine. Uh, let's start with the big one of the week. Uh, mm-hmm. It is, uh, I, to its credit, when the pandemic hit, F9, the, the ninth Fast and Furious mm-hmm. movie, was just like, Fuck it, we'll see you next summer. Like they, Right away. They, they weren't said, like, oh, we're, 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 we're not pushing it back until, like, July. Like, we're not going to push back until October. How many it, release dates did Tenet have? It's like... It was a few... They kept like, pushing it back, like, a month. They kept pushing it back, like, yeah, a month, They kept thinking, month, like, Tenet month. will be the thing that will bring people back to theaters, but they dramatically, like, jumped the gun on that. They just couldn't be... They just weren't patient at all. 
Uh, Bond has been pushed back multiple times, um, which had already been pushed back a couple of times, ironically, like before the pandemic. It got so close at the beginning, of, uh, at the end of last year, mm. that they released the theme song, which they usually only do like two weeks before the movie comes out. Uh-oh. And now the movie still is out. It's still not out. <laughs> it's going to be like a year. Um, it's absurd. Black so, Widow is coming out in like a week and a half as, yep. as of this recording, and that, that one was pushed back a bunch. Yep. Um, so so F nine. I just want to give F nine is finally out. I just want to give them to their credit. <laughs> they actually like weren't trying to rush it. They gave mm-hmm. it. A, they gave it a good amount of time, and it's paying off. They're doing okay in theaters. It's not like the money they would usually make, but this is exciting. People and people are talking about it. This is one of the most beloved franchises people have right now. It's uh, gloriously stupid uh, as a franchise. I actually. And here's where I have to admit to my shame. I wasn't able to see Fast Nine. <gasps> tisk, tisk. I wasn't able to uh, get out there. It was a it was a combination of scheduling and money, uh, mm. and that is just going to have to be fine. Fortunately, we have Whitney Seibold here uh, oh, yeah. to talk about whether Fast Nine or Furious Nine or it's, did they explain what the F is for this time? No, it's just F Nine. That is the full title of the film. F Nine. On, on the posters, it's F Nine colon the Fast Saga. Which is the first time I've ever heard the series referred to as the Fast Saga, but uh, was it was it, it? Fast Saga sounds like you're speed reading Gilgamesh or something. <laughs> but, uh, F- I had a big hat. Uh, <laughs> that's all I remember about Gilgamesh. He had a big hat, right? What did he have like a big helmet? Like he was big, a lot of horns or something. Uh, you're probably thinking of Sauron from no, Lord of I'm the thinking, Rings. There's actually a Marvel a Marvel comics character called Gilgamesh, the Forgotten One. And he had this giant, this giant um, helmet. I, was I, I don't think that's from the story. <laughs> I assume uh, they did their homework. Good. <laughs> so just remember the line, he had seen everything. That's the, the opening line of Gilgamesh. And okay. You can sound smart if you quote that. Nice. Um, F9 is nothing like Gilgamesh. Uh, F, Dang it. I, I apologize. Although I would love to see an ancient Sumerian Fast and Furious. Uh, F9, yeah. Is, <laughs> chariots flying off of cliffs. There we go. In this one... Um, Boy, howdy, this film is as dumb as a bag of hammers. Uh, it's really uh, kind of quaint that they assume I'm going to remember anything that happened in these previous movies. Can I stop you right there and uh, really interrogate the possibility of dumb as a bag of hammers? Because I put it to you this way. You've mm. got a bunch of hammers. Where else are you supposed to put them? Well, is that not, really stupid? It's not It's not the bag that's the issue. It's that the hammers themselves are not smart. And if you have a lot of them together, they're extra less smart. But you could say that about literally any inanimate object, yeah, really. Well, isn't, it, isn't it just kind of just being a dick at that point to hammers? Well, I've, I've also heard, you know, dumb as cheese. I've heard that one before. Okay, well, at least you're spreading it around a little yeah. bit. <laughs> anyway, what happens in this one? Uh, oh, golly, a lot. <laughs> uh Dom Toretto uh, jumps a car off of a cliff and grabs a vine and swings the car like a Tarzan. Wait, wait, does he grab the vine like with his arm? Like just no, like I, I think he like somehow entangles a vine around like the tail fin of the car. Wait, it's an actual vine. It, it's, it's not like, like it's a grappling like, hook. It's or like something. a rope. It, like I don't oh think it's God. even a steel cable. Oh it's it's God. like a, a a crumbling rope bridge. That it, oh you know, the, it won't be able to carry the car. Is so he at like least in like a DeLorean, a like a car that weighs like 300 pounds or something? No, he's just in a car. Oh my Michelle God. Rodriguez is in there with him. Oh my God. They say he swings it like a Tarzan. Another car jumps off of a cliff and a magnet plane picks it up midair. Ooh. Uh, the magnet plane belongs to an evil, uh, the son of an evil dictator who wants to take over the world. 
and he has hired We're actually uh, taken over the world. We've hit that point. We hit that point. He wants to actually control it. Like he want, okay. well, what he wants to do is control all of the war machines, like all of the war computers in the world. Yeah. And luckily, there is a magical two half MacGuffin. <laughs> is he played by Matthew Broderick. He's not played by Matthew <laughs> Broderick. Would be great if it was like war games. Uh, but there's a, a, a magical soccer ball that if you uh, unite the two halves, it can con- it's a, like a giant hacking chip and you can control yeah. all the computers yeah. in the world. Thank you, computer. I know it's uh, Wednesday. The evil dictator has, has hired John Cena. John Cena. I still don't know how to pronounce it. If you don't watch uh, wrestling, you don't know how to pronounce that name. I've heard no. people like, how do you not know how to pronounce John? No. And I'd be like, I don't hear it chanted very often. Mm-hmm. All I do is read it in the credits. Uh, John McGillicuddy. Uh <laughs> It, who, as it turns out, is Dom Toretto's long-lost brother. And we actually get to mm. see in flashbacks the young Dom and the young John Cena uh, and how Dom got into prison in, in the, to begin with at the beginning of the very first The Fast and the Furious. Okay. Uh, which, we'd, which they had articulated in the original Fast yeah. and Furious. Now, he like now, beat a guy up with like a wrench or something. He, he, and, he yeah. beat a guy up and I think killed him with a wrench. And, oh, no, uh, I think he's... He, no, he was, I think he was alive. He was just like... Um, he was just severely impaired. Okay. You know, he he, he ruined the guy's life, yeah. is and my understanding. Maybe we, learned, uh, we learned why, and there's like a dramatic reason that has to do with his father, and we see all that in flashbacks. And now he has a rivalry with his brother who has joined a s- super secret CIA-like organization mm. of mercenaries that can be hired by dictators to do evil shit. Yeah. Uh, and so it is up to Dom Toretto and Letty and Tyrese and Ludacris and all the rest yeah. to gather together and stop him. I would like and, to, and, I, and Han is back. I'm glad Han he, is back. I want to talk about that mm. in a second. I want to go back for a second. I want to because and again, you're explaining this to me. Mm. Uh, here's the thing that I think is fascinating about the Fast and Furious movies. It, it didn't start here. No, it started. With, <laughs> it started with street racing. Remember when they were There's actually a point break knockoff? They were the literally start. stealing DVD players off of trucks. Like that's how big this guy was in the original <laughs> Fast like, and Furious. Like it was petty theft. It was, was well, it. it was petty. It was grand larceny, but still, it was it was it was street level crime. Imagine if we jumped to this. Like imagine if. Like, Dom, you know, got away at the end, and, like, you know, Paul Walker was like, ah, I'm compromised, whatever, and mm-hmm. Jordana Brewster is just like, I don't know, college? Like, I don't know what they did. <laughs> like, but imagine, like, the second one. Mm. Like, his brother, John Cena, comes back and says, I'm working for a secret CAA organization, and we're going to use magnets in cars, and we're going to take over the world by mm. taking over that. And Dom Toretto's like, I steal DVD players. <laughs> I, I don't do <laughs> that kinda, stuff yet. You kind of want to... You kind of want to ease me into this a little bit. But his brother was already out there doing that. So it's this weird universe where, like, he was real small time once. I I do love the way this series has evolved. And I love that it has managed to grandfather in all of this goodwill. So it doesn't really matter how insane these movies get. They're presented completely earnestly. And audiences love it. And you know what? I kind of loved it. I was enjoying myself. It is really stupid. Yeah, uh, you talked about those magnets. There is a scene later in the movie where the bad guys have an electromagnet to cause like a, an electronics blackout, uh, and the good guys steal it and they break it up into little pieces and put it in the backs of their cars. And they have these knobs on the dashboards of their cars that they twist and mm. they can attract street lamps down to in front yeah. of other cars. Like poor and, kids with braces are flying from like yeah, a block away, like ah! yeah, they, they can repel cars away from them. Yeah. And there's a scene where they crank it and like washing machines fly out through a storefront and bash into a truck. Mm. Uh, motherfucking magnets. How do they work? It's very selective, these magnets. <laughs> it's not like metal, all metal is attracted to them, just the yeah. things they need in the scene. Right. Uh, and, yeah, so there's not a lot of, in terms of, like, physics or logic. 
yeah. in these movies and your 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 brain functioning just starts to fail you after mm-hmm. a while trying to make sense of this human bones don't break yeah. um you mentioned you pointed out that uh, there's this really wonderful line of dialogue in the sixth Fast and the Furious movie where Michelle Rodriguez is flying through the air and uh, Dom Toretto leaps from one car, grabs her midair, and they land on the hood of another car. And we're talking like like a distance of like 50 feet and she's thrown off at like 60 miles an hour. Like this yeah, is not yeah. just like, oh, a couple of feet. Like, no, no, no. no this, this is, is a like, giant... It's like two separate freeways on bridges yeah. and stuff. Yeah, it's like this insane stunt. And... Later in the movie, she's, she approaches Dom Toretto and says very earnestly, how did you know there was going to be a car there to break our fall? <laughs> yeah. Because a car is like a, a soft mat you can land yeah. on. Like, I could imagine if maybe, like, you fell off, like, a two-story building, the car is, like, on shocks and everything like that, so maybe the bounce would be a little better than just falling on the concrete. But, but we're talking about, you'd like... You'd still die. <laughs> yeah, you still die. My point is this. Maybe that's a little better than just falling on concrete, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about being flung mm. from a tank. <laughs> Going and, uh, at high speeds onto a moving car. Mm. <laughs> like, and it's there's ridiculous. A, there's a scene early in the movie when Michelle Rodriguez is on a, a motorcycle and she's knocked off by the evil local military. Don't ask. And uh, she flies, like again, 30 feet through the air and Dom sees this and he speeds up. And rather than let her fall onto the soft forest floor, mm. he catches her on the hood of the car. Yeah. She kind of like turns around and they give each other a thumbs up. <laughs> Yeah, they have plus one hundred to cars. Just, just logic immolates itself for your entertainment. Well, you in this told me movie. you told me there's a moment in this movie where the characters almost become self-aware. There's a, a scene where uh, Ludacris and Tyrese, who are sort of like the, if anything, the comic relief characters, yeah, they're they're a little distanced from like the yeah. main melodrama usually, yeah. so they're allowed to comment on it. Uh, and Tyrese points out that they've gone and gotten into all these really weird scrapes, and they've you know, barely survived explosions and they never have like a scratch or a bruise. Yeah. And so he posits the theory that they might be unbreakables, that does, they're just, does he say unbreakables? Cause he, that'd be a great thing to say. They, they say, they say invincible, but yeah, uh, oh, I, 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 I think we might be invincible. <laughs> I wish he had said we're unbreakables. We're unbreakables. You ever see that, that Bruce Willis movie? <laughs> they never made any sequels to that, right? No, no nope. <laughs> one kind of, yeah. okay. They made two. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, because you can be a really uh, uh, harsh critic when it comes to uh, mainstream entertainment, especially action movies, I find. Just, um, it, it's not typically my beat. I can appreciate that, and, and that's totally a lot, and I'm not going to judge you for that. I, I'm, I tend to be a little kinder to them, because I think I appreciate, um, I appreciate a three-star action movie, I think, more than you do. Mm. What is the line that... Fast and Furious crosses or doesn't cross mm. uh, that allows you to enjoy this, mm. but not, for example, say a Marvel movie mm. of a similar scope and tone, like well, what, or or something similar. Like what what is what is this franchise doing that allows you to give it a pass? I think the this the great thing about this series is that it constantly goes for broke. It's kind of trying to outdo itself in terms of stunt. And yeah. spectacular. There's something very pure about that entertainment. Why do we see movies with cars? We want to see cars do stunt stuff. And I know yeah. a lot of it is just special effects at this point, but still uh, it, it's it's still based in something very real world. I think the uh, when you're going for like the superhero movies, their shtick is we're going to do the same thing, but now more characters. Mm-hmm. Like it's just a bunch of people doing the same stuff. And, it's, it's, and, a, and there's a, a and but okay. there's a lot of special effects with like firing laser ba- blasts and mm-hmm. stuff, and that's I don't know le- less interesting to me. So like when you're driving like I don't know to like refill your prescription at the pharmacy, 
Yeah, you can like, pretend. Right you can <laughs> pretend you're Dom Toretto. Don't uh, pretend too hard. No. <laughs> I think they clear. I remember one time when I was uh, uh, like, like 10, 15 years ago now, uh, when the game Katamari Damacy came out. Mm. You, ever, you ever play that game? Uh, I actually have, yeah. Okay, so if you never played you're, Katamari Damacy. You roll things up yeah, in a big ball. A wonderful game. Uh, you play the Prince of All Space and your dad is an emotionally unavailable asshole, and one day he gets drunk and destroys all the stars in the universe, and you are responsible for making the stars again by rolling up a whole bunch of stuff. So you're a little tiny, like a little tiny speck of a mm. thing, like the size of like a thumbtack, and you just have a ball, like a big ball in front of you, like a dung beetle, and you're just rolling up things that are smaller than that ball until the ball is so big it can roll up bigger things. And initially you're rolling up things like, you know, uh, uh, I'm trying to think, like pennies and like crayons and things. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of the game you're rolling up literally whole continents. Mm -hmm. And it is spectacularly satisfying. And it's got a really, really fun soundtrack. Uh, it's a hoot. It's one of my favorite games of all time. Uh, however, uh, I once made the mistake of buying the soundtrack to Katamari Damage back when you could do such a thing, mm. and uh, playing it in my car. And as you are driving, you want to like pick up smaller items. <laughs> like, I'm like driving to like go pick up my girlfriend. Da -da, da -da, da -da, da -da. Ooh, post box. <laughs> just, just run into that mailbox. Yeah, watch me roll it up. <laughs> Sometimes it's a little irresponsible. Um, so okay, so so you you like this one? Well, uh, I'm. It's difficult to say. Like, I enjoyed myself. That's had, had, a, that all had a wonderful time. Is that all it's going for, or are there salient themes? Oh, goodness, no. Okay. <laughs> Good. It, it sees a salient theme, and it runs headlong in the opposite direction. Right. I have a couple of follow-up questions, just for the sake of it. Again, we're not spoiling anything. Um, we know from the trailers that Han comes back. Yes. And this is something that's bothered me since... Mm. Not Fast and Furious 7, because that one was basically the guy who killed Han is the bad guy. And I'm like, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. But by Fast and Furious 8, uh, he's, like, having barbecues with people and shit. Like, everyone's sort of fine with him now. And I'm like, dude, he killed Han. Why Why? Do, why the hell are we, like, having this gigantic sad send-off for Brian? And yeah, I know in real life Paul Walker died, and that's incredibly sad. Mm. But in-universe, Brian goes off to retire. And they, to, like, live with his wife and child on a tropical island and be happy forever. And they treat it like it's the saddest thing ever for the characters. And then Han dies and then the next movie, they're having a beer with his killer. And like a part, it's like, isn't that a little? What? What? What did you have against Han? Like, isn't that kind of weird? So, I'm glad that they said that he's alive, mm -hmm. and that kind of takes the curse off of that. And now I'm allowed yeah. to like Jason Statham's character. That's cool. I don't want you to ruin it for me, but do me a favor, just for my sake and the sake of you listening. Is the explanation for why mm -hmm. Han is alive a addressed and b satisfied? Uh, it's addressed. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> they they explain the the Kurt Russell character um, comes back and we get to see him like he's sort of like the puppet master. They call him Mister Nobody because he doesn't have a name and uh, he's been pulling the strings with this big long elaborate spy scenario of some kind and he uh, he is involved in saving Han from that car crash. Turns out he didn't die. Yeah. Yeah, even though we saw him like suffering in a crashed car, right. it turns out like that was somebody else. It was or just, was oh, a my knee. Yeah, like, it was fine, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, and, and yeah, they we, we no, see we're in the middle of that Tokyo Drift race. I guess they just switched them out for we, Super Smash. Yeah, we, we, we see in the middle of the to- uh, like a flashback to Tokyo Drift, and Mister Nobody's there watching the crash happen, and then we pull back, and Han is standing next to him. So it's like he wasn't in the car at all. All right, fine. Um, so that's how they address that. Well, I'm glad. Uh, and uh, and there's a little little bit of a tease for uh, uh, the possibility of a Han and Shaw team up movie later on. So they get well, to I would, I would confront like, each other about I, that. I wouldn't complain about mm. that. Okay, well, all right, well, I guess that's F9. Uh, la- I guess last thing, um, as far as this franchise goes, ranking it seems a little unnecessary, but is this upper echelon Fast and Furious, lower echelon, middle echelon? The, the, it's the craziest one I've seen. I mean, the craziest they're, one. They're, well, they're that says large, a lot. Yeah, I know. Zombie they're, cars they're, in the last one. They're go- there was, uh, yeah, rained cars in the last one. Yeah, like, like, last could, one. like Charlize Theron artificially intelligent evil, cars. Evil like, hacker. Uh, Charlize Theron is back in this one, too. Yay. She ends up teaming up with John Cena and, and the evil dictator's son. Uh, she, we see her in this movie and she's in like a Hannibal Lecter box surrounded by this laser <laughs> grid. Like, and she still has that stupid page boy haircut. Ah, oh, bless her. That's awesome. <laughs> she's just sort of leaning back in her suit saying, well, hello there. <laughs> she, she's having the time of her time, time of her life in this movie. Oh my uh, God. I love how much of an action star. Yeah. She's, like, she's such a badass. That's great. All right, cool. Well, let's but, move on. But yeah, the, this one is... I mean, they can only up the ante, and, mm-hmm. and at the end of this movie, they launch a car into space. So, you know, I don't know where they can go after this, but I said well, that after the last one, too. I'll so. tell you one thing that they don't have in Fast and Furious yet, unless I've been very much lied to about the plot. Uh, werewolves? It is a franchise without werewolves. Not yet. <laughs> so let's talk about a film called Werewolves Within. Werewolves Within is a horror comedy based on a video game I am not at all familiar with. Yeah, this is based off a video game called Werewolves Within. It is actually a VR game, and I don't have a VR system, so I couldn't play it if I wanted to. But it's my understanding that the game, Werewolves Within, is inspired by the party game Werewolf, or some people call it Mafia. Mm. Uh, If you've never played this, you get a bunch of people in a room, and uh, I'm going to just... The rules are a little bit more. It's, it's sort this, of like head, heads up, seven up. If yeah, you everyone. That in everyone closes their eyes except for the person who's running the game, and then they say, "Whoever is the werewolf, or whoever is the assassin, open your eyes." And that person who's been randomly selected by picking a thing out of a hat opens their eyes, and then they like point at someone, and that's the person who's going to be dead in the mm-hmm. next match. Uh, and then the, everyone else closes their eyes again, and then the person who's like the detective can like point at someone and say is that the werewolf or is that the assassin and the person running the game can say yes or no depending on whether or not it's true and then and and if you're wrong you die well not not right away necessarily and then what happens everyone opens their eyes and then people start accusing each other usually based on nothing like i heard some rustling to my left well yeah i i had an itch no he's the werewolf he's the werewolf my, my son is very fond of a game called Among Us, a uh, oh, yeah. little, little astronaut game, which is very similar. One person is yeah, what, they call, what, yeah, what they call yeah. the imposter, and they can murder other people, and everybody else has to figure out who it is. And it, yeah. It's an online game, so nobody can see who it's very the fun. killer. I like that game a lot, yeah. actually. Um, so I've never played this game, but the idea of turning the werewolf party game, even just that, uh, into a movie is actually pretty good, because the mm. whole thing is it's about murder, yeah. murder detection and paranoia. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So what we've got here is a new film uh, that is about a, a, a forest ranger who moves into a small town. And the small town is full of kooky characters. This is like in, in wooded Vermont. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, there's the, the weird secluded hunter guy. Uh, there's the uh, wacky postal lady. Uh, there's the woman who just wants to open an arts and crafts store and is weirdly obsessed with her dog and her husband who's like seriously trying to cheat on her, but no one will let him. Uh, like everyone's like, yeah, get away. Um, 
the 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 wacky person who who runs the bed and breakfast the the, the tweaker drugged out couple and yeah. uh, and then uh the monkey wrench in this little community is the guy who wants to build a pipeline yeah and uh, he's building an oil pipeline through half of the people really welcome it because they think it's going to bring the community a lot of money yeah and everybody uh, other people are protesting it they don't want the pipeline to go and because they want to preserve the environment and, and that's yeah, why and they're here and this kind of tension is actually exploited mm-hmm. by a potential werewolf in their midst possibly so uh yeah when uh, people start being attacked by what seems to be a werewolf and then there's a snowstorm and the roads get cut out and then the power gets cut Everyone converges on the bed and breakfast, and the accusations begin in a sort of low-key clue kind of way. Hmm. I'm going to say this right now. I love this movie. (laughs) It's really good. This might be a new contender Uh, for the best movie based on a video game. hmm. Granted, that's a relatively low bar, but they are getting better. Hmm. There have been some pretty good ones Uh, lately. I liked Rampage. Rampage is fun. I thought Detective Pokemon was good for what it was. Hmm. Uh, The new Tomb Raider is a three and a half star action-y kind of thing. It's fine. It's a good film. Um, There have been some good ones. Uh, The best one, probably, if it's not this, is probably Professor Layton and the Eternal Diva. Which is a kind of an obscure anime film that yeah. isn't really well known in the it, United it got, States. It got a theatrical release when it came over here, and then got swiftly forgotten. And it's hard to find now, but it's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this is charming as fuck. Well, what it has is a, a little bit of naughty energy. A lot of the uh, line readings are very flipped. There's a lot of uh, sort of throw off gags. Uh, and I was getting a lot of like Joe Dante energy off of this very much in so. that it's there's a lot of horror, but it's very playful. Yeah. And so there's a werewolf stalking around. We see like claw marks and stuff. There's no shots of gore. I think it could have used that maybe, but there's a little bit. There's a, a little bit. No, um, not, yeah, probably there's, been there's like horror and violence and everybody's really terrified, but yeah. they're also terrified in a really funny sort of way. Agreed. Uh, and. All of the broad character, t- they're a little broad, but they read very well, and I think they play together very well. Like, I believe the characters, yeah. the actors are all completely game for it. They're, they're, they're broadly drawn, again, in that clue kind of way, where you put any two of them in a room together and they'll say something funny. Mm. And that's what I want. I want, it's, it's got that great uh, small town community vibe, where you feel like this could have been a TV series or something, if you've been willing to pad out the werewolf attacks. Um, the cast is great. The cast is completely mm. game for everything. Uh, Sam Richardson stars as the uh, Forest Ranger Finn, and um, his whole thing is he's a nice guy to a fault, but maybe that's actually not a fault at all, and I kind of appreciate that conversation. Uh, Milana Vaintrub mm. plays the uh, postal worker who's totally into Finn, but uh, he's he, he ruins it. Uh, because yeah. by being a dork, uh, but um, he's, he's a dork about his ex at a, yeah. a, an inopportune moment. Very inopportune when, moment. When they're about to sort of like really bond. The the yeah. scene where the where we get to see meet the two of them like just together for the first time. Mm. Like they meet out and they're sort of wandering around and she's introducing him to all the characters. Good screenwriting setup. Yeah, it actually she, works. She's actually on. He's going into town and has to meet everybody and she's on her mail route. Yeah. So, so actually, why does, not just introduce the characters that way? As, as, in terms of like literally just walking around town pointing at people and telling you about them it's actually really really clever way to do yeah. it that feels and really then, organic. And then they yeah. settle at this uh, and this is a place I want to visit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like an, an axe throwing uh, video arc with like a juice bar in the back. Yeah, it looks like it's a like, really cool place to hang out. And like it's it's like a place where a Cameron Crowe film would be set. And uh, yeah, and they just sort of hang out and they drink juice and listen to Ace of Base and converse. And they set up a lot of things that are going to come up later in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and their chemistry together is great. Yeah. Like they, you can really sense just how much, not just chemistry they have together, but what great screen presence they have. And mm-hmm. it makes me want to see more movies with them as leads. Uh, Milana Vaintrub is a name you might not know, but uh, she's probably best known as the spokesperson for AT&T right now. Mm-hmm. She has a lot of those, like someone comes into the AT&T thing like, hey, I have a funny AT&T thing to say. And she's just like, well, we got it. And he's like, oh, okay. And then she's like, ha ha, I am a commercial spokesperson. And that's, <laughs> it's, it's a weird gig, but it pays a lot. I imagine, oh, yeah. I imagine Flo from uh, Progressive probably is like, a oh, she has, she's, yeah, she has, mansions. she must be set for life. And I, and good for her. She's good at that. Mm. Um, Milana Vaintrup, and, and I've seen her in other things too. And she's also a very talented actor. And I think this is maybe like the biggest thing I've ever seen Milana Vaintrup in, um, as like a, you know, major character piece, as opposed to those commercials. She's great. Mm. I want to see her in things. I believe, I had heard that they they'd shot a pilot for a uh, new Warriors or Great Lakes Avengers Marvel series, mm. uh, and she was cast as Squirrel Girl. Oh, she'd be a good Squirrel Girl. She'd be a perfect Squirrel Girl, <laughs> and I want to see that pilot. Mm. Someone, please send us that pilot. Um, we, we 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 won't tell. Uh, <laughs> um, we're, we're discreet except we talk all the time yeah well we have a show in which we talk about shows that didn't get picked mm. up and got cancelled um, but I would love to see that show I really do mm. um, I'm particularly fond of uh, Michaela Watkins uh, in this film she plays mm. uh, the woman who just wants to open a craft store and is like way too into her dog she mm. is really fucking funny in this movie she reminds me of like a really hyper Mimi Rogers. Like, <laughs> she, she has that energy. Like, you remember she? her, like, from, like, if you imagine her in Ginger Snaps, like, she's kind of, like, this uh, uh, kind of uh, chipper, maybe somewhat oblivious suburban mom type, but then when the chips are down, she's the first one to burn down her house. Like, <laughs> that's this, but, like, a, a, like a, this is, like, a 10. This is... She's really, really funny yeah, here. I, I remember her from Britney Runs a Marathon. Yeah, I've almost yeah. forgotten she was in that. That's that's a good movie, too. People mm. should see that film. Um, this is, yeah, I, I honestly just got to tell you, please see this movie. I recommend this movie. Uh, this is the kind of film that I think if this had come out in the 80s, whether it had been a big movie or a small movie, by now it would have a big following. Yeah. By now, it would, like, whether it was a hit at the time or it was sort of a blink and you'll miss it kind of thing, it would end up on home video. People would see it on home video. People would say, this is really great. And by now, there would be, like, two-disc special editions from Shout Factory. And there'd be <laughs> revival screenings yeah. at a midnight movie. And it worries me sometimes because this is, it's, it's in theaters, but it's a very, very small release, that it's going to go to VOD. And it's so easy for the drops in the bucket now to get noticed because there's mm. so many films that are not getting a major release and they're just getting thrown into, yeah, well, you know, th- 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 just thrown into the field, basically, yeah, just scattered yeah. to the wind. I want people to find this and I want people to appreciate just how much fun this is. Is it all, all-time classic? Probably not. Clue is better than this. I'm not going to pretend yeah, it's the next Clue, but it's got that vibe. And if you liked Clue, I think you will really enjoy this movie. For sure. And I think a lot of people like Clue. <laughs> I think a lot of people mm. will really enjoy this movie. Yeah, I, I, I haven't met anybody who dislikes Clue. Mm-hmm. I know uh, people who don't think it's a classic, but I've never heard anyone who said Clue sucks. Yeah. The Clue. Yeah. I think the worst thing you can say about Clue is that it takes a, a bit to get going, but mm. by the time you're there, who cares? <laughs> Well, it takes like it's, twenty minutes for like for really for the mania to set in, but I, I feel okay. like it, it started as like this murder mystery, and then the filmmakers just got bored. No, it's it's a slapstick farce. We're just yeah. go right away. Yeah, we're just going there. Yeah, 
Anyway, uh, so Werewolves Within, great movie. I really, really enjoy it. Please, uh, please check it out. You know, I agree. Yeah, I really liked Werewolves Within. Yeah, and you, and thank you because mm. you saw this before I did, mm. and you sent me a text like, "See Werewolves Within, it's your jam." And yeah. I'm like, okay, because <laughs> we can't see everything. And mm. Whitney Squire saw it, several movies this week that I didn't. But another movie that we both saw uh, is a film that has again fewer werewolves than I'd like. Uh, it's a film called yeah. Lansky. Could could benefit from some werewolves. I think there are very few movies mm. that couldn't benefit from some werewolves. <laughs> Can you imagine, like mm. literally any movie, just mm. throwing a werewolf gets a little bit more interesting, right? Mm. Like, um, um, Patton. 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 Patton be great. All of a sudden, Rommel just wigs out. There you go. You're a miserable movie. werewolf. I read your book. It just said, rawr. There you go. Got, got, a, got a whole good bit there. Thank you very much. But yeah, let's talk about Lansky. Lansky is a new biopic about a notorious, uh, mafia kingpin, Meyer Lansky. And, uh, Real life figure, by the way, mm-hmm. if you're not familiar with the history of the mafia, Meyer Lansky uh, was a contemporary of people you've probably heard of, like Bugsy Siegel and Lucky Luciano, uh, and he was instrumental into creating this uh, underground, for a while some of it was legal, but uh, this illegal gambling uh, empire, mm-hmm. international uh, gambling empire. If you're, if you're to believe the movie, uh, it was Meyer Lansky who invented Las Vegas. Uh, well, the mafia kind of did invent Las Vegas, uh, yeah, and yeah, he was yeah, instrumental but, to that. Yeah. that. That that's kind of true. It's a little simplified, but it's kind of true. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's also one of the only like uh, uh, mobsters from that era to just make it to old age and die naturally. Mm-hmm. He just he ended. Up, I think he got lung cancer, <clears throat> and he died in like the he, late seventies, early eighties. He was in his eighties, and uh, yeah. and Harvey Keitel plays Lansky in the in the quote in the present day in the in the nineteen eighties. Good casting. Good casting Let and, and uh, Harvey Keitel is great, and I've 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 seen him sleepwalk through roles before, but this sure. is not one. He's he's actually bringing a little something to this, he's trying to bring some sort uh, of a devilish sort and, of uh, uh, mm. you know. I, I, I guess we're all, we're just hanging out at this Denny's, but I am telling you about how I killed all these guys. Yeah, or something. There's a nice he, contrast to that. He has he has some confidence about it, uh, and unlike in the Irishman, there's no like sadness or introspection going on. No, he's just, he's just an old guy. He's like, yeah, and I did all these horrible things and I got away with it. No rules in the world. Uh, and, uh, that would be, I guess if it was sort of like a, a one man play and he was just sort of mm. telling oh, you God. stories, I would love to see that. If it was that just great. Harvey yeah. Keitel, if it was just Harvey Keitel, this movie would probably be great. Uh, but unfortunately, it's not just Harvey Keitel. No, in fact, he has a co-lead uh, in the form of Sam Worthington, who is playing a reporter who is a plank of wood. And he's, uh, he's literally named David Stone. Like I don't know, if there, <laughs> I don't know if there is a David Stone who wrote an, who wrote a book about Lansky. But when you see this movie and you realize just how kind of perfunctory, how perfunctorily it mm-hmm. treats the Meyer Lansky story, that the, one of the characters is named David Stone just feels kind of right. Uh, Sam Worthington, who you know from like Avatar um, and the that really good uh, mm. Australian crocodile movie Rogue, you know everyone's still talking about it. Mm. Uh, it's, actually, it's actually a very good film. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he was in one of the bad Terminators. I know that doesn't narrow it down a lot, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, he plays a, a an author who has been hired by Lansky to write his biography uh, to tell his side of things and. The book can only be published after Lansky dies. It's part of the agreement, so he's kind of free to be self-incriminating. Hmm. And you would think that that would be like this, oh man, we're going to get like all of these great insights from Meyer Lansky, and he's really going to open up. And instead, unfortunately, the movie, which has a lot of flashbacks, in which uh, Lansky is played by John Magaro from uh, First Cow, um, it's, it's just a list of anecdotes. Hmm. It's just a bunch of stuff that happened. 
And some of the anecdotes are more interesting than others. Hmm. Uh, there's a part that I either didn't know or had forgotten about because uh, I've actually I'm actually interested in the history of the mafia. I think it's an interesting sort of you know, chapter in American history. Um, uh, where Marlansky and his contemporaries were actually uh, enlisted by the U.S. government to help keep the New York docks secure during World War II because all those ships are just in the harbor and it's a potentially a gold mine for spies and saboteurs. So they were like helping the CIA or the FBI or whatever to keep America safe in World War II. That's a whole movie right there. <laughs> I would that that's yeah. a fun film. I want to see that film by itself. And there's a couple of chapters in this thing where I'm like this could be a whole film and we could actually like really dig deep into the characters, but no, we have to skip along so quickly. Like we cut from like Meyer Lansky like meeting the woman who would become his first wife. Uh, played by Anna Sophia Robb. And then we cut to them being married, and then we cut to them having a kid, and then we cut to them, like, fighting, and then we cut to him being horrifically abusive, and, like, that's it. Mm. There's no sense of their relationship or what they meant to each other or, just or anything. She, she hates it. That's yeah. like, We just get to see her suffering. It's pretty mm. awful. Yeah, it was horrifically abusive. They kind of forget that he had a second wife until, like, at the end, and then they don't really talk about that at all. Um we get to see a lot of the machinations with him and other mafiosos, particularly uh, his his crony, as this film puts it, uh, Bugsy Siegel, Ben Siegel. Uh, Bugsy Siegel is played uh, in this film by an actor named David Cade, who I, I kind of like his approach to the character as like uh, Meyer Lansky's like dumb, hunky friend. <laughs> like the guy who's just like, he, he looks good, he looks good in his suit, and he has... No potential whatsoever. He's not smart. He's not charismatic. He just likes to kill. And his greatest downfall, if you know the Bugsy story, is that he was around for so long and he knew Myrlansky so well that eventually he got promoted to middle management and he sucked at it. <laughs> and that's <laughs> what it boiled down to. And there's this bit where David Cade, as Bugsy Siegel, is talking about how, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I'm bad at this. Why did you put me in charge of Las Vegas? And, of course, it just leads to this ultimate tragedy. And, I don't know, something kind of fun about just mm. seeing, like, Bugsy Siegel is, like, I don't know, almost like a surfer bro or something like that who just got, like, in way over his head. Like, it's like one of the characters from The Hills, like, had managed to, like, enter the mafia. Like, kind of how they play Bugsy Siegel. And it's kind of a fun portrayal of Bugsy Siegel. I kind of like that. Um, if, if But... It's such a small part of the movie is the problem. Yeah, exactly. It could have been the whole yeah. thing, that whole friendship. And that's the thing that's frustrating here because I feel like they never really figure out what the heart of this movie is. They don't figure out like what relationship well, is most yeah. important. It ends up becoming too much about, in the end, this David Stone guy who I give no fucks about. Yeah, I didn't come to see was, Stone. Uh, I came to see Lansky. It was the, uh, won't you be in my name, or... Um... The the Mr. Rogers movie. Uh, it's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, At least which that... was a, about the uh, the reporter and his relationship, but then they try to tie it in thematically because... He has like, a problem with his dad. Yeah, he has that. problems with his dad. And, I appreciate and Mr. That... Rogers is about sort of healing relationships. Yeah. So uh, that, that one did it better least, than some because at yeah. the very least the protagonist had something to learn mm -hmm. over the course of the film. And I actually appreciate in that... I actually like that biopic. I think in that biopic, he actually like... There's a great scene where... He gives Mr. Rogers shit, and oh. there's a moment. There's a moment where John, where Tom Hanks, and Mr. Rogers, looks at him, and it's like you know that like there's a part of Mr. Rogers nice. that wants to punch this guy right now, <laughs> and he doesn't. Mm. He he takes a moment, and then he says something thoughtful, and then he moves on. 
But it does challenge the image of Mr. Rogers just a smidge. Mm. And the protagonist of the film does at least have some reason to have these conversations. Yeah, Here, the, David Stone doesn't have a character. He doesn't he, have a reason. He doesn't change. He doesn't, and we spend too much time with him. It's not that he's like sort of writing this down or reporting back to a boss. We get to know his inner life and how he's divorced and he's trying to maintain a, a relationship with his kid. And he meets this other woman and starts, but she might not be trustworthy. And then he's approached by the FBI because they know he's writing a book about Lansky, and the FBI is looking for this store of cash that Lansky might have somewhere, and As he's going to die. And what is it with this movie and Capone? about like aging mafiosos and all we're supposed to care about is where the money is hidden I mm. don't care are you going to give me if, some of that money I was then gonna I say, don't if, care if it was like not the FBI but if it was like the Goonies like yeah. it was just a, a group of little kids go. who are like looking oh for God. this l- missing cash oh my god that would be amazing so, yeah. like good fellas but they're little kids and they're just trying to figure out where like Al Capone's money was hidden yeah but, but oh Al, god, Al, Al Capone is still alive so they're like yeah. sneaking around Al Capone like that kind of thing that's a fun movie I would pay that's to a see fun, that movie that's a fun premise yeah. but it's it's not it's the feds they're looking for like Three hundred million dollars in cash, and that's a lot of money. It uh, is, especially but, at the time. But like, oh fuck it, any time. That's a shit yeah. ton of money. Uh, With inflation, yeah. it's like even more now. But right, like, yeah, right, right now, piff. I wouldn't wipe my nose on three hundred million. <laughs> Can't think of something I want to spend three hundred million dollars on. I can't uh, think of something you could spend three hundred million dollars on, like an like island? a single item, <laughs> yeah, an island maybe. I don't know. Uh, a, a film, like a one big gigantic blockbuster. <laughs> yes, they cost like about that much these days. Kind of yeah, yeah, I guess fair enough. I'd, I'd remake Avengers Endgame. There you go. <laughs> just, <laughs> just to throw a monkey wrench into the I'm system. Get, this gonna, one's canon, too. Yeah, and I'm going to get Richard Linklater to direct it, and he's got $20,000. Go. No, he has all $300 million. He, he can do whatever all, he wants. Okay. Yeah. All right. Same cast. I'll I get the, all, everybody back. Okay. Fine. Anyway. Or, or same script, but an all-new cast, and see what they do. It, it's a real shame, because, again, Harvey Keitel is, is really good casting for this mm. kind of character. And you can tell he's really, really trying. He's massively let down by the screenplay, which gives him these, like, really shallow platitudes that sound kind of cool if you put them in a movie trailer, but mean next to nothing. Like, here's mm. a whole bit where, like, people called us the underworld. We were the overworld. And I'm like, wow, wow that doesn't is, mean what anything. What does that mean? Yeah. You know, like, the the like, one that uh, that really made me chuckle was uh, they're describing Bugsy Seagull. And yeah. uh, just like, the, the only thing he liked better than killing was the dames. Or maybe it was the other way around. Well, <laughs> so... <laughs> so he liked two things. What did he like better? Like... The only, only two liked... things he liked, a surprise and fear. Fear and surprise. <laughs> he liked killing and his thermos. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's all yeah. it's all these like big giant like pronouncements, like in gambling, as in life, the only winner is the guy who runs the game. And mm. I'm like Deep yeah, term. like I think you can gamble like twice before you figure that shit out. <laughs> <laughs> like this is not it, it's not deep. He doesn't feel like Lansky has emerged at the end of his life. With interesting with insights, kind of even, wisdom, even yeah. if there, or or even if like he had emerged with this weirdly creepy nihilistic view about life, that would have been interesting. And to have someone who is younger and maybe more maybe more naive, but maybe just more optimistic, challenge those ideals could have just been a good two hander. Hmm. But instead, no, it's he doesn't really have a lot to it. Like you get the sense that like ah maybe he wishes he had more family, but you never really get a sense of profundity to that. Mm. There's nothing, honestly. It's a really frustrating film. Um, Lansky has been portrayed in multiple films, usually in like an analog because he was alive for mm. a lot of it. Like, like, uh, like notably uh, in Godfather Part Two. Yeah, played by the great uh, acting instructor Lee Strasberg, 
who uh, got an Academy Award nomination for playing Lansky. Lansky was still alive at the time and apparently called Lee Strasberg and said, good job. Uh, and I think he said maybe uh, you could have made me a bit more likable. Um, but, uh, or vice versa, I can't remember, actually. Um, and uh, But there's actually a film, if you really want to see a good like biopic of Lansky, it's not amazing, it's not Tom Tier, it's not the greatest Moffat movie ever, but it's good. Uh, there's a movie directed by John McNaughton, who also did uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Starring Richard Dreyfuss as Meyer Lansky. It was an HBO movie in the late 90s. Uh, and it's quite good. Mm. It's better than this. So that's the Lansky. It's also called Lansky. So if you see a Lansky, make sure it's from the 90s. That's what I would recommend. Because this is a big missed opportunity. It's, yeah. it's yeah. such an interesting figure. You know, a horrific figure. But an interesting figure. And deserved a more interesting movie than this. Um, Alright, let's move on. And let's talk about some films that you saw and I didn't. Tell right. me about... Uh, I carry you... With me, which I assume mm. is about cell phone service. It's about your. your I carry you with me as a romance film. Uh, it's okay. uh, a I carry you, I carry you with me is uh, uh, directed by um, Heidi Ewing, who co-directed the film Jesus Camp. She's previously only done documentary films. This is her first narrative feature, mm. and uh, she made this inspired by uh, two of her friends. Uh, her friends are named Yvonne and Gerardo. And uh, she knows their story about how back in the 1990s uh, in Mexico, they uh, these two men fell deeply in love. And it, it's she knows about sort of their struggle in uh, their struggle with coming out, with being out in Mexico in the 1990s, and also uh, about Yvonne's dream of coming to America and opening his own restaurant, which he would eventually do. Uh, and we get to see dramatized in those in flashbacks to the 1990s where Yvonne is played by Armando Espitia and Gerardo is played by Christian Vasquez and how they uh, they have this really wonderful uh, very deep emotional bond as they they've like met and fell in love there's this really wonderful sequence where they meet in a gay bar and they talk about uh, being in and versus being out they have all these light and dark, uh, deep conversations. It's very Linklater-ish for a few scenes. Uh, and they just sort of spend the night talking and, uh, you know, sexual tension is rising. It's really, really wonderful. And uh, then we sort of, fla- at the end of the movie, we flash to the present where uh, Yvonne and Gerardo are now being played by themselves. Okay. It's still scripted, but now they're reenacting more recent dramas. And uh, are, they, are they good as themselves? Do you, do, you, do you think they were miscast? Well, the director is very good at uh, utilizing both in the flashbacks and in the modern day sequences a, a very documentary like naturalism. It's just sort of about living with them and feeling their emotions more than it is, you know, acting big scenes. Uh, a lot of the emotion comes from very incidental moments, little little things where they're they're communicating non-verbally. Uh, it's very emotionally disarming, actually. This movie is a kind of kind of drifts around you like this warming uh warming haze and you you're you're sort of wrapped up in in the love and the emotion and the the draw of it all to the point where we actually are missing vital parts of the narrative oh. uh when we flash forward like Yvonne is talking a lot about how he wants to come to America and he wants to open his own restaurant and a lot of it is about how he first comes to America how difficult it is for modern immigrants especially during the Trump era uh and post Trump era where we're just trying to uh 
uh, these people are just trying to survive and how the system is like pushing them around in this really, uh, really unfair sort of way and how he can't get Gerardo into the, into America and how they're separated for many, many years. And then we cut to the modern day sequences and Gerardo is there and we don't get to know the story about how he came in or how he assimilated at all. It's just, okay. And now everything's kind of okay. We're missing a big chunk of the story there. And that's, that's a little dissatisfying, but I think, uh, the director uh, is is more interested in who these guys are now and how they sort of felt. She's interested in paying homage to buddies of hers. And I think she does a pretty good job. I think this is a movie more for her and for them and for all of the people who know them and if people mm. have gone to the restaurant. It's like a little community movie mm-hmm. than it is for something for broad consumption. Mm-hmm. Does but that I value that is value though, that right? Definitely, it does. I think yeah. uh, you know, know, knowing a little tiny community is is more universal than anything. Yeah, and I think uh, she does a really good job of capturing these two guys' lives. Uh, as a narrative, it's a little bit shabby, mm. but as uh, in a, like this sort of abstract emotional experience, it does carry some power. Mm. Fair enough. All mm. right. Uh, well, let's move on. Mm. Uh, let's move on. And you saw a horror movie. I did. Uh, called The Evil Next Door, which I assume is about you. Oh, because I live we're, next door? We're neighbors. And I'm evil? Yes. Am I evil? Chaotic evil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm chaotic evil. <laughs> Not even neutral evil. I, 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 there was a t- I don't think we could have done it, but there was this temptation once when we were figuring out, like, people had asked us at the end of our podcast, like, could you, like, give a movie, like, a ranking just because sometimes... You talk about the bad and the good, and it's a little difficult to tell ultimately where you fall hmm. on whether or not you liked the movie and recommended it or not. And we were like, okay, that seems fair, and uh, we, you know, we had a lot of debate over it. And there was a moment where we were seriously considering uh, rating movies based on the like, Dungeons and Dragons scale of a of align, uh, like yeah. moral alignment. Like, so like Dungeons and Dragons. So like a, so like a two star movie would be like neutral, but mm. if it was kind of a it was like at least attempting some weird things. It'd be like chaotic neutral and like that kind of thing. Um, mm. I still think it's a fun idea, but I don't think we could do it because that's all. Copyrighted I think those are copyrighted, yeah. yeah. Which is a shame because it's a fun. It's a fun idea. <laughs> um, but uh, mm. anyway, uh, well, th- but th- th- thank you for calling me chaotic evil. Oh, I love you again. so much. You're you're at least chaotic uh, neutral. Thank you. Yeah, you're <laughs> very chaotic. Can, can I be chaotic good? Fine. I'm definitely chaotic. Anyway, no, you're chaotic. Good. Uh, I love you. I love you, chaotic good. You know what's not chaotic is the evil next door. Ooh, is that good? Uh, no. Is it chaotic good? Uh, no. <laughs> this is neutral neutral. Um, th- this is like... This is like, you know, if, if you have like a, a, a Geiger counter or a radiation reader and you point it at a block with no radiation, that's this movie. Okay. I like that. There's no reading at all for this movie. Uh, it is a haunted house picture. It's a, it's a Swedish film uh, and a family moves into a house. Mm. The house next door is haunted with the ghost of a young boy and the, the young boy in, uh, in the movie makes friends with the ghost young boy and the evil starts coming over to visit and... Uh, it, from there on, uh, dad leaves town. It's just uh, mom, son, and ghost in the house together, and a series of spooky stuff happens. And that's the movie. That's it. <laughs> uh, it takes a lot of the visual cues, especially the photography from the Conjuring universe movies, mm-hmm. and that there's like a lot of dark blue shadow and you know lo- long extended shots where people are creeping down a hallway and everything's or very some, moody some, something will skitter past in the background out of focus when you're not really supposed to see it and you're kind of terrified by that 
A lot of the usual visual ghosty gags that we've come to know from a decade of haunting movies. And this film brings nothing new to it. Uh Not a thing. There are no new surprises. There are no new ideas. Some of the visuals are kind of interesting, but then you realize that a lot of it is just like kind of redoing like the spider walk sequence that was cut right. out of the, the exorcist. And if you know, the exorcist you've probably seen that sequence. Well, it's, ironically it wasn't even in the exorcist. It was in the version you've never seen. Yeah, and now well, it's considered part of the exorcist. But well, like, I, if I don't know if it is officially, I, is the official exorcist cut the director's cut now. Is that the I, one that not, comes not, out more often? Not to me. Uh, okay. when, uh, I work in a movie theater and whenever we want to book it, we have to specify, ah. but if we want to get a new print, it's the version you've never seen. Yeah. That's the one that's, uh, which is the, the, new, the newer cut and which re-included the spider walk. The spider walk's cool, yeah, it's fine. but it, it's edited into the movie awkwardly. So yeah. in, it, as, as a sequence by itself, it's really terrifying. Yeah. Certainly it's a hair. And, it's and if you image. get, yeah. if you get like a special edition DVD, uh, they'll include it like after the movie and that's yeah. when you get to watch it. That's what the evil next door does. There's a lot of people like bending over backwards and have scary faces and, you know, scary, but, you know, in a way we've seen before. And if you've seen it before, it's not scary, is it? Well, I I think there's something to be said. And and again, I didn't see this one, but I'm curious your take on this. There's something to be said for going back to basics once in a while in a genre. Because what well, happens is see if it still works. Yeah, so exactly. there's a template that has been struck, like you know the Friday Thirteenth Halloween slasher template, and then after a while, people are like, okay, but how do we do that with a twist? Hmm. And then okay, we'll do it, but he's killing you in your dreams, or it's, but it's a killer doll or something. And then every once in a while, I think it's useful to go back to the original formula and just try to be like, because it's easy to get lost and sort of remove what made the original thing effective in the first place because you haven't reinterrogated it in a while. Yeah, so. I think it is possible to just do a straightforward haunted house story and just do it really, really well and then have that be effective and then say it's not original, but it's really good. Mm. That's not this. No, it's okay. it's not original and it's not very good. And okay. I think because when it comes to haunted house stories, we've had those for centuries. Uh, yeah, sto- take, stories yeah. of ghosts, stories of hauntings. Yeah. Let's go back as far as there have been humans. And yeah. Uh, you know, this is a, and when, when you get down to it, all, every haunted house story is going to be about something else. It's, you know, the ghost is representative of something. Usually, usually it's, it's history. Usually it's history or um, since the 1980s, at the very least, uh, tends to be about the dissolution of the family unit, the nuclear mm. family. Yeah. Uh, that was something. There's, was, there's something <clears throat> in the family that is not being addressed. Exactly. Whether it's, it's sometimes it's uh, alcoholism I, or I know that or... It, it became really big in the 80s because I think we were reinterrogating the nuclear family unit from the 50s at yeah. that time. and Poltergeist. And the yeah, Shining, pol- we're doing exactly. Yeah. Poltergeist and the Shining are prime examples of this. Yeah, uh, and I feel like this is a movie that doesn't understand that about haunting movies. It thinks mm-hmm. that ghosts are ghosts, and they're monsters that move in with you. And there's this is about you know a, a, a divorce. There's a divorce family, so there's mm-hmm. some sort of disconnect. Maybe this idea that the child is floating away from you and going over and grabbing a friend. But I feel like this film is not interrogating those ideas at mm-hmm. all. I feel like it's much more eager to get to sort of the the fright and the the spooky moments than it is to get a, to any sort of the emotional state. That sounds like the, uh, yeah. That said, the lead is very good. Oh, okay. Um, the the lead actress. Let me look up her name. Um, her name is uh, Dylan Gwyn. Okay. Um, I apologize, I'm mispronouncing that. Yeah, she she is able to carry this in sort of a turn of the screw sort of way, where she you know can mm. modulate through a, lo- a lot of emotions through just sort of creeping around a house being scared. Hmm. But yeah, the, otherwise this is like 
baseline reading. This is like yeah. the, the, the structure on which you're going to put a good movie. Right. Like, this is what we need to start to put the alterations on to make it interesting, and they never bother to put any alterations on it. That sounds, in some respects, like the exact opposite of the movie I'm going to review, mm. uh, which is called An Unquiet Grave. Uh, and it's a film, it's a horror movie in which there's a lot of actual character work and actual, like, actual, like, thought that went into the underlying emotional and psychological reality of the horror. Mm. But the movie itself is actually kind of lacking in style, and I think that undermines it somewhat. Um, this is a film, it's a new film on Shudder, uh, and it is a two-hander. There's only two actors in the whole movie. Uh, and it's a really, really good, I will say this, although I don't think the movie is amazing, it's a really, really good example of how much you can do with no budget. Okay. Like there's, this movie costs, you can tell it costs very little. It's two people, hmm. the woods, a car, a house, and a gravestone. Like, that's it. <laughs> that's all, that's you, all you got. That's all you got. And hmm. they got a pretty good movie out of it. It's hmm. almost great, but they got a pretty good movie out of it. Uh, and the plot is this. One year ago... Uh, a man was in a car accident with his wife. Mm. He survived. She didn't. And he's completely traumatized by this. He's living with uh, a lot of grief and guilt and shame. And it turns out that she had an identical twin. Mm. Okay. Who is also uh, grieving. And everyone else in their lives is kind of ready to move on. And they are not. They, yeah. are, they are still feeling this as deeply as ever before. And... That's when he reveals that uh, he has been doing some research and he thinks, and maybe it won't work, but he thinks he's found a way to bring her back from the dead or at the very least see her again. Um, this always works out. Always works out really, great. really well. Every single time. When has oh. this ever backfired? Never. Never. No, 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 I was, I was, once, I was giving the listener an mm. opportunity to interject. Mm. Like, I'm sure you came up with one in that two seconds. Mm. Yeah, because it's so, it's so common. Uh, but, you know, but that's the thing, is that grief is not necessarily always dictated mm. by uh, sort of rationality. Because if mm. there was rationality, we go like, well, that's life, it's sad, whatever. Like, no, we're, we're feeling things so bad, we're, we're feeling the lack. Mm. Uh, and it leads people to do things that... You know, not necessarily in their best interest, but they feel right. You mm. know, they feel like it feels good. Like I remember when my dad died, it felt good to just sit on my couch and eat Cheetos. Mm. And like, that's it. I just couldn't do anything else because I was so sad. So if someone had offered me the opportunity to get to see your dad one more time, I would be very, very tempted because mm. I missed him so much. And I think that's something that I think before I had had someone like die who was really close to me in my life. And I was pretty old when someone really close to me died. In my life. I was very fortunate in that regard. But as a result, when I was like 30 or whatever, when my father died, uh, I was completely blindsided by the emotional mm -hmm. impact of that. I yeah. wasn't ready for it at all. It wasn't like, you know, I lost a close friend or something like that when I was a child. And, you know, I was able to get eased into that. And now I understand the process of grief. And so when it happens again, maybe I'll be a little bit you know, uh, more self-aware at that time or understanding of that process. And no, just a ton of bricks. So I kind of get mm. it. And so this is the kind of movie that hits me better now than it would have when mm. I was like 20. And I would have been like, this is illogical. Like, yeah, we're not thinking with that part of our brain right now. We're thinking with the emotional and needy part of our brain. So they both decide to, they have to go back to the place where she died. They have to do a creepy ritual. And uh, that's when... We it backfires, but not in the way one of them was expecting, and that's kind of cool. It's a huh. good little twist, and I actually really do think that 
it's pretty effective. And I don't want to ruin it for you because it's not like that many. Again, there's two people in a house for most of it. It's not like it's full of mm. incident reversals. Um, but I think that's actually got a good uh, uh, almost campfire story kind of uh, sequence of events. Mm. Uh, I like the overall path that the story takes. I think harsh lessons are learned. I think, uh, you know, it deals with, um, you know, grief and regret and how when we're emotional, we do things that don't benefit us and hurt others. And um, the cast is quite good. In particular, I'm really fond of uh, Christine Nyland, uh, who also co-wrote this film. Mm. Um, so she's excellent. The problem with this movie isn't the, the, the writing, which is fine. Isn't the acting, which is good. It's that it has no sense of style. Now, it could be that kind of perfunctory, matter-of-fact, uh, almost hygiene film down. kind of thing. Yeah. Like, and that could that can be effective in itself because it creates this weird objective reality. And if you inject any horror into that, it can be really off-putting and terrifying. Mm. They didn't do that either. This just feels like, you know... If this movie had, like, the, the sort of a... a a Mario Bava approach where we're really going to, we're really going to like a lot of color and style, a lot of color, a lot of style, exciting camera angles, Mm. whatever. Not, maybe not the whole thing. Maybe at least once the horror started, I think it would have sold the depth Mm. of the horror better Mm. than making it really matter of fact, because what we're dealing with here is basically an allegory for grief. And Mm. the bigger you make that, I think ironically, the more universal you'll make that. And it'll become something that is actually very potent and I think they kind of shot themselves in the foot by not trying harder to make it uh, uh, more elaborate. The movie, weirdly enough, that I was thinking about uh, when I was watching this, mm. it's not a good movie, uh, but it's a movie where, damn it, they tried, mm. uh, was Bert I. Gordon's Tormented. <laughs> I'm probably the only person on a podcast to talk about that this week. Uh, Bert I. Gordon was a uh, B-movie a sh- filmmaker. Schlocketeer from the 50s. And we talked about several of his films when we did the um, MST, best, the best movies MST3K ever I, did. And I, I know about Bert I. Gordon because of Mr. Science Theater. Yeah. The amazing colossal. Same. A lot of giants in his movies. Yeah, he makes a lot of, he made a lot of, I think he's still alive actually. Uh, he made hmm. a lot of uh, uh, sci-fi films about people right. who grow really big or people who shrink really, really small because mm-hmm. it's a pretty cheap visual effect and you can get away with it. Um, but he also did a movie uh, that was about a guy who uh, was getting ready to marry someone wealthy, and mm. then his old girlfriend pops back and threatens to blackmail him. And then she, like, he doesn't kill her, but he lets her die. Mm. Yeah, Bert, like, Bert I. Gordon, 98 years old, still kicking. Still kicking around. Uh, he, he doesn't kill her, but she's, like, about to fall off of a lighthouse, and he decides not to save her. Uh, and then for the rest of the movie, as everyone else is like all happy and getting ready for this wedding, he is tormented mm. by the ghost of this woman that he killed. And Bert I. Gordon is, you know, he likes to think of himself as a visual effects maestro. And he uh, throws in all kinds <laughs> of like... <laughs> he likes to think of himself as Look, an effects guy. I, I will say this. I will say this. Sometimes he gets away with it. Sometimes he mm. doesn't. But you can tell whenever Bert I. Gordon makes a movie, he's doing it because he likes the visual effects. Yeah, yeah. And he doesn't always have the money for it. So sometimes they look cool. Sometimes they don't. This one's got like a lot of like floating heads and stuff like that. And mm. I, But I feel like the, the attempt at virtuosity in Tormented... <laughs> I like the movie mm. Virtuosity too, uh, <laughs> but I feel like the attempt at being virtuosic oh. uh, is that a word? Virtuoso. Okay, being the, a virtuoso. Yeah, the attempt at that 
uh, would have worked really, really well if like the writing and the acting had been good and tormented. And it's not. If you had taken that kind of approach to something like An Unquiet Grave and actually like, and again, it doesn't need to be Sam Raimi asking crazy, but you just make it like spooky. Mm-hmm. You could have had something that was really potent and really hit really, really hard. And instead you got something that just feels like muted mm. to a fault. Yeah. However, again, I do say this. It's quite good. Maybe mm. not amazing, but it is quite good. And if you're thinking to yourself, man, how do I how do I make a very low budget movie that tells a complete story with next to nothing? Mm. This is a great example. You can totally do it. You just gotta just gotta think yourself you gotta come up with a story that doesn't need a lot. Mm. And this is a good story, just could have been told better. Yeah. Alright, moving on uh, Tell me about False Positive While we're talking about horror movies um, Okay, False Positive is another horror movie It's it's more, it's more of a pregnancy thriller uh, Than it is a pregnancy horror movie mm. um, uh, But this is written by uh, It was directed by John Lee It was written by John Lee and Alana Glazer Who also stars These are comedians They're known for uh, shows like Broad City A lot of comedy shows I don't actually watch but okay. Broad <coughs> City's quite good It's uh, It's made by comedians and uh, they are int- there's no comedy here at all though they're really interested in exploring uh, the world of pregnancy. Alana Glazer plays a woman who the world of pregnancy, the industry of pregnancy, <laughs> the wonderful world of pregnancy, uh, the pregnancy industry, and uh, and they're they're criticizing the pregnancy industry. Alana Glazer plays a woman who uh, has been taking fertility drugs, so she and her husband, who's played by Justin Theroux, can get pregnant <clears throat> thanks to. Connections he has, he uh, was the former student of this uh, well-known professor played by Pierce Brosnan. He's now a fertility doctor, and they go to him. He's really exclusive, and through his machinations, she's able to get pregnant. And there are twists along the way about the pregnancy, but more than anything, it's about how she is being treated through all of these uh, all these machinations. She's having a lot of really dark visions she starts hallucinating like p- puddles of blood or wakes or finds herself in like these big glowing red fields. And there's a lot of horror just through uh, these like shots in the atmosphere. And of course the music does a lot of the heavy lifting. There's a lot of just really screechy, weird, spooky stuff going on on the soundtrack. But more than anything, she feels a lot of really horrendous condescension, not just from her husband, not just from Pierce Brosnan, but from the world in general. All yeah. of these, all of this language we use around pregnant women is incredibly condescending. This, uh, oh, you're you're glowing, or if you forget something, you just have mommy brain, and that's that's a phrase that's used a lot in mm-hmm. this movie. Is oh, you just have mommy brain, and this movie is using mommy brain as a way of gaslighting her. I, I told you this. No, you didn't tell me that. Oh, you just have mommy brain. You forgot about that because you're pregnant. And uh, like I said, there are some twists with the pregnancy, but she uh, begins to suspect some really horrible things are going on with her body that her uh, male, uh, her the, ma- the men in her life are, are not telling her about. She begins to suspect some weird conspiracy. She even has a, a dream where her husband and Pierce Brosnan are having an affair. Hmm. Uh, and... It continues apace, and it eventually uh, climaxes in, like, the sort of grindhouse B-movie climax, and I won't spoil it. Uh, I'll say this, uh, that Ilana Glazer is very, very good, and she is capturing something really, really palpable and real about uh, kind of the, 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 
treacly language connected to the birthing industry. If any of you have kids, you probably know what I'm talking about, about how you are treated so much differently during pregnancy. This is something my wife and I went through and how there's so much language out there, uh, not necessarily directly from your doctors, but just in general about this, this glowing blissful time that pregnancy is supposed to be and how there's all these mysteries that people are they seem like they're hiding stuff from you and all, all these pregnancies are different and everybody or everybody's the same or this is normal this is not normal it's all this very fraught dramatic time all geared around essentially industry they're trying to sell you a lot of this stuff uh and i think ilana glazer is really really good at criticizing that kind of language because it's something i've been through i, I can recognize it mm. Uh, Gretchen Maul is in this movie. Yay! She plays the nurse at Pierce Brosnan's clinic, and she pl- she plays it like a Stepford nurse, like she's kind of robotic. She's great. She's uh, really underappreciated. Yeah, Gretchen Maul is really like, like she's hilarious in this movie, but also really terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, she has a, a, a really wonderful sequence near the end of the movie, um, which sadly I can't talk about. But yeah, I, I think she... Uh, it's really, really under underrated actress. Um, she never really. Mm. She got to lead a couple movies. She uh, was in a, a romance in the nineteen nineties with Jude Law. Oh, where he was, a, where he was a uh, um, what was he? He made, did that thing where mm. he make art with like little pieces of rocks. I, I think so. It was called Music from Another Room. Music uh, from Another yeah. Room. Yeah, that was that's a weird film. Mm. Uh, but uh, it, it's 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 a bit odd. But I, yeah. I think she was really good in it. She. Um, I guess her her biggest star role. He makes mosaics. mosaics. That's what I was thinking of, yeah. L- little rocks. What? And uh, That's what you do. she uh, tiles, please. Ah. She uh, was what also tile, also the lead rock. in the. She played Betty Page in yeah. a Betty Page biopic, and she was really good in that as she well. Was, she was in Rounders. Um, yeah, she had mm. a moment where she like she was really going to break out, mm. and it, it didn't happen. And it's always unfortunate to see that, and you know. But uh, anyway, she's great, and seriously, someone give her like a cool. Like give Tarant- her a statue of some give, kind. Give her, give her like a Tarantino esque role. Like give her something like all of a sudden people are like she's she like, has been great forever, hasn't ca- she? Ca- like cast her in some like really wild, difficult role, but yeah. she's capable of it. So yeah, just like, for some praise. Yeah, give her, everybody. Give her, I just like Gretchen Maul anyway. Um, yeah, she only has a supporting role in this one, but she's really, really good. And Alana cool. Glazer is really good. And Pierce Brosnan is, I think he's really good as. Uh, he was a good choice back in the 90s to play James Bond because I think mm-hmm. James Bond yeah. is kind of a smarmy character. Oh, he was perfect And Bond. He was a great he's, Bond. He's my favorite James Bond. I, I, yeah. I, I know I, that's a controversial take, but... Uh, I, I see it. I was, yeah. his, his movies were like hit and miss. They did like one and a half really good ones. I, I think the, the first two he did were really good. The second, yeah. the third one was... And the fourth one was just awful, but yeah. I think he's good in the role yeah. uh, because he has that smarminess. And here he does have that condescending smarminess of this old doctor oh I know better than you kind of energy that's, that's what he's always been good at and yeah. I feel like um, I think my favorite uh, Pierce Brosnan role is actually uh, you ever see The Tailor of Panama oh I saw that one yeah. that movie's great <laughs> where like Pierce Brosnan is like the spy who like hooks up with this tailor who like does like fancy clothes for like the biggest people in the country and just ends up He's a spy, but he's like a shitty, like evil spy who just manipulates everyone and doesn't care if the information is true or not. And boy, is that a great counterpoint to his Bond movies. It feels like he was actually trying to make a point. I really do. I love that film yeah. so much. Um, okay. I, I'll have to watch that one again, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's been a bit. John I, Borman did that, right? I think. Did he? I, I think it was John Borman. Mm, I don't know. I, yeah, I forgot who did the Taylor. I, I will look it up. I just lost a Schmodown question. 
Taylor of Panama. Uh, <laughs> Taylor of Panama, director. There you go. Uh, what would you like to talk about next? Was, uh, uh, do you want John me... Borman. John Borman. Right. Uh, would you like me to talk about the Sparks Brothers? Uh, do we have anything else? I thought it was just oh, the I guess, Sparks I guess Brothers. that's it. Okay. Yeah, please, talk about the Sparks Brothers. Okay. Otherwise, um, we're stuck. The we're Sparks Brothers. <laughs> and then the podcast never ends. And then we just start back on with F9. I, I didn't see F9. Tell me how it was. <laughs> probably do that we should do like a, a marathon just reviewing the same movie over and over again nice um the sparks brothers is the latest documentary uh from i guess it's the first documentary from edgar wright uh who is canonized geek filmmaker who burst onto the scene with very energetic genre pictures like Shaun of the dead and hot well, fuzz certainly speaking he burst onto the scene with the tv series spaced which was which remember set the template for those movies everyone yeah. liked. Um, I, I guess in the United States, spaced was sort of a cult phenomenon here. Yeah. I remember. Uh, I remember when I was uh, uh, like in the early two thousands, like spaced wasn't available in America. It never aired in America. Mm. It wasn't released on home video in America. But if you if you went into a comic book store, the person behind the counter did have a bootleg tape, <laughs> and you could get a bootleg tape of spaced, and it was like this cool thing that nobody knew about. Don't say like, that Edgar Wright's listening. He's going to ask for his royalties. <laughs> I bought the call, DVD. You're calling out all of the, 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 the all those DVD, comic book Edgar. I, when it came out, I bought the DVD. I know you're I would, listening. I would like to think I would like to think Edgar Wright would be like kind of okay with his show being distributed in the states, like underground now. Yeah, like at the time, he'd probably be a little miffed. But it wasn't available money, here. But, uh, it was it was generating interest, so that people mm. demanded it, and then it came mm. out and helped his career. I think it but, worked uh, out. But anyway, but if there's Keeps anything, uh, the tapes. if there's anything you know about Edgar Wright, it's that he's he's a fanboy. Mm. Uh, he he makes movies that look like the movies he likes. Yeah, uh, he made a movie called Baby Driver. It's just because he's a big fan of the movie The Driver and wanted yeah. to do a movie like that yeah Shaun uh, of the Dead is every zombie yeah. movie ever liked Hot Fuzz is every cop and, movie ever liked and, to, and I think and to his credit that's, that's a legit approach to making movies I it's think just to his credit he homage. brings his own material and his own hmm. take and his own thoughts to those films and yeah, I think yeah. Shaun of the Dead took all those zombie movies and told a really human story about uh, you know the last, up, yeah. you know, the last phase of growing up where you're an adult and you're kind of clinging to your childhood and now you have something happens an emergency mm-hmm. and you have to actually find your inner strength in this yeah, case that, it's zombies Shaun of the Dead and I think I, I think The World's End uh, is yeah. make good sort of bookends to one another uh, because I think The World's End is the one with it kind of criticizes that kind of thinking yeah. like he's, he's actually a little bit I think that movie's a little bit more introspective it's a really good film. It's underappreciated. Yeah. I, I think Hot Fuzz is great too. I think the, mm. th- that trilogy is fantastic. Yeah. Um, not so, I've, I'm on record. I'm not not so fond of his Scott Pilgrim. I'm not so fond of Baby Driver. Um, mm-hmm. But the, my point being is that he he likes to devote himself to his objects of affection. Yeah, he is a big fan of the band Sparks, uh, which got their start in the late '70s and has been making music incredibly prolifically <laughs> ever since then. Uh, and as such, he's made of uh, this very large, incredibly long and informative love letter about the band Sparks. Uh, the band Sparks is essentially the brothers uh, Ron and Russell Mail, M-A-E-L, uh, who are local to Los Angeles. Uh, there's photographs of them from their childhood, and they're hanging out in Santa Monica and places where I hung out in my childhood. Uh, they were... Uh, they went to UCLA. They decided to form a band in the 1970s with some other guys at UCLA called Half Nelson. Uh, they played a couple gigs. They got a couple gigs in England. At one point in their career, uh, somebody said, look, Half Nelson isn't working. That's not a good band name. I think it's a fine band name, but they said they need a new change. Mm. So we're just going to go with <laughs> Nelson. Well, the, no halves. We got to go full board. Just full uh, Nelson. Sh- surely there's a band out there just called Nelson. But uh, I'm sure there is. It's probably a band called Everything by Now. Everything yeah. in the dictionary. 
You know, one of my favorites is still the the, the Jehovah, Jehovah's Witness Protection Program. That's good. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. But uh, one of the uh, it was a producer of theirs. I think it might have been Todd Rundgren. Uh, called like pulled them aside and said, "Hey, I know you guys are into like really old, funny comedy movies. Why don't uh, like you guys like the Marx Brothers? Why don't we call you the Sparks Brothers?" And they looked at each other and said, "How about just?" Sparks, and that was the name of their band from from then on. But Edgar Wright, knowing that little piece of trivia, cutely named his his film the Sparks Brothers. I get it. <clears throat> uh, and and Edgar Wright loves to be cute. Uh-huh. Uh, he gets two of the members of Duran Duran on camera to talk about Sparks, and they're on camera, and each one of them has a one Duran under their name. This is Duran, and like that's the two guys. Then you got them together, and they're Duran Duran. Mm. Isn't that cute? Uh, Weird Al Yankovic appears in the movie. His Chiron is accordion player, which, which I think Weird Al has done before. I think he likes yeah. to, to be described as accordion player. And he puts himself on camera, which seems incredibly self-indulgent to me. What's, the, just, what's the line between putting yourself on camera and narrating your own documentary like Werner Herzog does? Is it well, really that big a difference? Well, I, if, if you've already constructed it as a Talking Heads documentary and you're getting information from all of these recognizable or famous people, putting yourself on camera seems indulgent at that point. Because he's not really, he does narrate a little bit, but then he gets on camera. Like, he's getting a little too involved in the Sparks story. But I said this is a very informative documentary, and if there's anything you don't know about Sparks, you'll, you're going to know it all by the end. Because Edgar Wright takes kind of a Wikipedia page entry to this movie. He he doesn't really uh, bookend it. He doesn't set any sort of context. He just goes through chronologically, album by album, what was going on in Sparks' career at the time. Uh, now, Rom and Russell Mayle uh, are the only consistent members of Sparks, and they do all of the writing and singing, and all of the other band members kind of rotated through. They had drummers for several records at a time, maybe, mm-hmm. but for the most part, they had a different lineup in, on every record, so all of their records sound a little different. And as such, that uh, I guess I right, <coughs> felt this was a good way to sort of go through their discography. Uh, how many records do they have? A lot. They have yeah. twenty five records. It's, it's like every other year. It's yeah. been, they've been they've been active for fifty years now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, so that's, that's crazy. yeah, just about every other year. Uh, and they talk about some of their failed projects as well. Um, there's a little bit of talk about how they wanted to adapt a famous manga. It's called like like Miri the Psychic Girl, or I forgot the actual name of it. Um, no, I didn't know that. They they wanted to make a musical of this manga that they were big fans of, and indeed Tim Burton signed on to direct this movie. Mm. And then through you know the machinations of uh, fate, May the Psychic Girl, May which the I'm Psychic unfamiliar Girl, unfamiliar with actually, interesting. Yeah, they, they they really liked it, and they wanted to make like when they couldn't get records made, they decided to make this movie, and that kind of burned them, and they were a little upset. Uh, they're also in the movie Roller Coaster. Like they're yeah. in, like they're in it. A uh, roller coaster was ma- made like right at the tail end of that disaster f- trend in the nineteen seventies, where they were running out of stuff to be yeah. a disaster. And, and uh, uh, the the ride Revolution had just opened up at Six Flags Mag- Magic Mountain here in Southern California, which is really quaint now, but it's still there. I think it's their mm. older. I guess like two of the the coasters they built in like the seventies or eighties. They're still standing, and at the end, the bad guy gets hit by the roller coaster, and there's a bomb on it. Uh, it's <laughs> I saw it on TV. It, is it, it sucks. Is um, it playing the real roller coaster? Or is it playing like an v- alternate version of that roller coaster? I, I think it's the real version. I think it's called okay. Revolution in the movie. It always but... amuses me when like when like real theme parks will allow their like brand. I understand a lot of people to shoot there, mm. but allow their branding to be associated with something that where like the theme park isn't safe, like SeaWorld and Jaws 3D. 
Yeah, it's just wanna... SeaWorld. It's not like Ocean World. It's SeaWorld. And it shows them being like shitty mm. and abusive and unsafe and getting all of their people and getting all of their audience killed. Yeah, I th- how did Sea? How was SeaWorld okay with that? Well, if you've seen the documentary Blackfish, you know that was just pretty accurate. Yeah, SeaWorld uh, was just like, well, we got off light. Let's do yeah, this. Seriously, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, but yeah, they're in the movie Roller Coaster. Like they hire a band to open up the roller coaster, and there's Sparks. Um, Sparks had a few charting hits. They were mm. never gigantic. Mm. Um, they did a, a track called Cool Places. That was one of the ones I was familiar with. They did another track called I Predict. Mm. That was another one I was familiar with, but that's because I've been delving mm. through a lot of like new wave stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of Sparks. Uh, um, yeah, I was actually relatively unfamiliar with Sparks until mm. um, uh, I became familiar with the inner workings of uh, my wife and partner, M. Lopez da Silva's iPod. <laughs> which has just been in our car for forever. It's like, I, she, has, she has a lot of Sparks. So I've listened to a lot of Sparks. Okay. Sparks rules. I didn't see this documentary, but Sparks mm. rules. Sparks yeah, is a good yeah, band. And and if you're unfamiliar with Sparks, listen to some Sparks. They're really good. Uh, I, I kind of wish that Edgar Wright had more than just praise. Like, he was actually trying to tell a broader story about Sparks. Because it sounds like it's a fan documentary. It's, it's just like, a fan documentary. Why we love it's like, this. I, we, yeah. we love this. And it's, you know, person yeah. after person. They got a lot of famous people. I mentioned Weird Al, but like Neil Gaiman and Michael Myers and Duran Duran yeah. and uh, Roddy Bottom from Faith No More. And like a lot of musicians are in this movie. Yeah. A lot of producers are in this movie. They get, uh, Georgia Moroder produced one of their records. Nah. Um, yeah. Todd Rundgren produced one of their records uh, way back in the early I, I days. I hear Bjork is in it. Uh, Bjork's, they didn't get her on camera, but her voice is in it. Um, and they got, uh, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, who has, have both made several films with, uh, with Edgar Wright to come in and do some voice work and some animated sequences. Uh, there's a a funny animated bit, uh, because Sparks was really striking. Um, they, their music is actually really kind of playful. There's a, a sense of humor to their music, a kind of cynicism, that's uh, they they argue in this documentary kept them out of the mainstream. They're a little bit too cheeky for their own good. Um, uh, uh, Russell is is sort of seen as like the pretty boy of the group. He was the lead singer. Uh, he has a really interesting voice. A lot of a lot of people tuned in just because he was so good looking. Whereas Ron decide he's he played keyboard. He didn't sing. Uh, he looks a little bit like David Byrne, but he adopted he adopted the costume of Adolf Hitler early on in their career, and in, in the sort of confrontational, cheeky, playful, funny kind of way. It's like, oh look, here's the band member, and he looks a lot like Hitler. So he had the little uh, little mustache and the combed down hair, and he always had this like kind of serious expression on his face. He was playing a role on stage, and they, they were such a unique look that a lot of um, a lot of fame, other famous musicians kind of recognized them. And there were, uh, as such, Paul McCartney dressed up as Ron Mayle in like a music video of his some, for some Paul McCartney work. So they uh, have this animated sequence where they're trying to imagine what it would have been like for the Beatles to be hanging out, talking about sparks in like the 1970s. Uh, yeah. DJ Lance Rock is in the movie. Um, uh, Jane, Jane Weedlin is in it. She was the one who sings, uh, uh you know, on cool places. Mm. Uh, yeah, Fred Armisen, Flea, Patton Oswalt, any anybody you can think, anybody. Patton Oswalt, who's if, a, if, 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 if are you talking about something cool? Uh, Patton Oswalt's in your documentary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he just shows up. Like, hey, I hear you're talking about GI Joe the movie. Like, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> Making a documentary about GI Joe the movie. Have, oh well, I have five minutes on I, Sergeant Slaughter playing himself and how that really wrecks the universe. <laughs> Five minutes. He could go on for fifty. I know. Uh, I just love, I, on Sergeant Slaughter. I, I, I love Ben Oswald's work so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, but I but yeah, yeah, but yeah, like I said, it, it's it's very much a fan documentary. I'm glad to have all this information, and Edgar Wright keeps it moving. It's two and a half hour documentary, and mm. because he has this sort of list approach, you're 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 engaged throughout. That's that's a, a good way to keep an audience engaged. Um, I just wish that there had been a little bit more. I don't want to say objectivity, but a, just a, a little bit more about their story, uh, about who they are. Uh, we get to know that some things about their personal lives, but not a lot. Uh, you know, they were not really sure. Like Jane Weedlin was dating Russell for a little bit, and they talk about that, but that's as much as we get in terms of their personal lives. Uh, what, what their beliefs are, what they do when they're not writing music. When we, we catch up with them in the present day, uh, the, the male brothers, and they're still writing music. We get the impression that they wake up, they go to the same cafe every morning because they, they're very, very fond of ritual. Mm. Uh, they meet at their music studio and they just write music all day. Just these like, two brothers that they've been they've been doing this ever since they were well, in college. I feel like I feel like that's like going to be like you and me when we're eighty. Yeah, we'll still be making podcasts, just getting up every morning, you know, yeah. saying, you know, saluting was, our robot overlords. Oh, was back the croissant the, today? Oh, it was a good croissant today. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, well, it sounds so. It sounds okay. Well, let's let's. It's uh, let's, it's, it's it's pretty good, but okay. yeah, I I I was longing for more. I was longing for no, something. Fair. There's a a bit near the end. Uh, just one last thing. There's a bit near the end where uh, Sparks decided to take on this really massive live uh, live performance project, where over the course of 25 nights, they were going to perform every single one of their songs. That's like 800 some songs, yeah. uh, and uh, from all 25 of their records in chronological order and. They talked about how what a difficult task that was, and I wish that had been sort of the framing device, like how difficult that was. Where, how did they feel on night twenty four of this thing? Uh, you know, was it a relief? How difficult was it? And then maybe through that context, they could flash back to each of their records and talk about the making of each one. Uh, some of the records weren't hits. They don't talk about those records for very long. Um, I want to hear more about their failures, but that's just because I'm a twisted fuck. Uh, <laughs> Well, I think, I, but uh, yeah. you live in a documentary. You want to hear about all of it, don't yeah, you? You want yeah. to hear. We don't necessarily have to get into like the worst. What's the worst thing you've ever done, Spox? Uh, one time I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Like, no, we, to tell us about how it was hard to make that album once. Um, all right, well, fair enough. Listen, let's review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Uh, once again, if you're new or just need a reminder, the critically acclaimed scale goes thusly: we review films on a scale of C minus to C plus. The lowest you can get is a C plus. That's below average. We generally don't recommend it if it's C, if it's a. I did that wrong. C minus. <laughs> C minus is as low as it, it's the exact opposite. C minus is as low as it can get. Okay, uh-huh. that's below average. That means we don't really recommend it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, a C is average. Most movies are average. Some good, some bad. You know, maybe it's up your alley. Maybe it's not. Mm-hmm. And then C plus is really quite good, and we definitely recommend the film. Uh, and uh, so let's get going. Uh, the Sparks Brothers, Whitney, on the critical mm-hmm. claim scale. Um, it's um, a, a really. It's a really high C, or a, a, I'm going to give it a low C+. Plus okay. Just because it, it is really informative, and Sparks is a really interesting band. But, uh, yeah, like I, like I said, I wish Edgar Wright had brought a, a little bit broader of a view of the band than just how great they are. Fair enough. Uh, false positive. Uh, a, a high C. Okay. Uh, it, it can go a little bit further, but I think it has something on its mind, and I appreciate that. Uh, uh, an unquiet grave. Uh, I will give this, yeah, high C. All right. I think uh, I think it handles its themes really, really well, but it's mm. kind of undermined by how slight it feels. Mm. Uh, but again, f- as low budget horror filmmaking goes, like you could, I could teach this in a class, okay. just in terms of like here's how you get a lot out of a little mm. 
they could have done a little bit more and it would have been for the movie's benefit, but I did like it. Uh, I carry, I'm sorry, uh, The Evil Next Door. The Evil Next Door, C-. minus. Uh, uh, it, it's just, I've already forgotten it and I saw okay. it yesterday. All right. Uh, I carry you with me. Uh, 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 I see. Okay. Let's see. Uh, it's you know very like I said. It's emotionally disarming. I, I like that uh, that that it just sort of. But carry well, you carry it with you, don't you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Lansky. Lansky C minus. Yeah. yeah. They, they. It's a big missed opportunity in many many ways. Yeah, it would have been so nice to have, have like give Harvey Keitel this like wonderful gift mm. of an interesting character, great performance, and the movie just really lets him down. Mm. Uh, yeah, damn shame. Uh, Werewolves Within, on the other hand, mm. big old C plus. C, C plus for me too. It certainly uh, it might be the best movie I've seen this year, but it's one of my favorites. Like, I just had a really <laughs> good just, time. It's with just it. so enjoyable. It's just yeah. such a, a light engaging movie yeah just definite hard hearty mm. recommendation uh get out on the ground floor with this cult i recommend that tell people let's, <laughs> let's, let's get this thing going let's get this movie popular within like a couple of years rather than 10 yeah uh and then uh lastly which i didn't see f9 uh f9 is be honest it's, it's an f um it's uh no. for fast it's an ff it's a c plus sure why not uh okay. just it, it it's it's difficult because this is a really stupid movie. It's a, right. It, no, I mean, it's a stupid movie. <laughs> but it goes it's back, a really stupid does it, movie. Does it go back around to being smart about how stupid it is? It doesn't go around to being smart, but good golly, is it entertaining? And I can't deny that I was, you know, just clapping my little hands, having a, a great time when they're launching cars into space and I, shit. I guess the lesson is if you're going to be a stupid action movie, don't do it by halves. Yeah. Like, just go do, for it. Go for full stupid. You know, yeah. Be completely earnest about it. Don't, don't, don't assume I'm going to care. Just assume I'm going to have <laughs> thrills. And that's all I really want. Awesome. That's all I really want is thrills. All right. Well, that is it for the critically acclaimed this week. We'll be back next week with reviews of films like The Forever Purge and others. Other stuff's coming out, right? I don't know. Isn't Black Widow next week? or is No, nah, that's, that's next week. This, this right. week is Forever Purge. All right. Like Black Widow's like the tenth or something or ninth. Ninth or tenth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah, 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 yeah. So we got, but we got, we got stuff. We got we'll, stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll be back. Uh, and uh, so that'll that'll be soon. Uh, thank everybody for listening. If you want to uh, talk about anything we discussed in this episode, take us to task for something, uh, raise a, raise a salient point, or just talk about anything else you want us to discuss, you can email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net and we might read your email in an upcoming episode of our podcast, We've Got Mail. Mm -hmm. Whitney, how can they contact us mm -hmm. if they want to do so on paper? Uh, we do have a P.O. box. Isn't that keen? Uh, yeah, if you want to mail us an actual physical letter, we'll read that one as well. Um, you can re email us. Or email us. You can mail us. Just mail us at the Critically Acclaimed yeah. Network, uh, <laughs> P.O. Box 641565. Los Angeles, California, 90064. That's P.O. Box 641565. Say it with me. Never. 641. 641. 565. Los Angeles, California, 90064. Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah. Got it. Uh, just write, yes. Yeah, so we, we got a postcard. Yeah, we've we've gotten some kind things from people already. Appreciate it. Again, no pressure, nothing, but some people wanted the option. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, we're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash acclaimed network where we have a lot of exclusive shows including shows about uh, Batman uh, Star Trek our Star Trek podcast all our yesterdays we review every single episode of Star Trek in order and we just mm -hmm. got through the live action original series the animated mm -hmm. series and we just put out an episode about Star Trek the motion picture which uh, my opinions of have changed dramatically since rewatching it 
so that was an interesting conversation to have, and I hope uh, you're enjoying that. Mm. And then pretty soon we're going to be moving on to the next generation, and uh, we have a lot of stuff uh, there as well. Very special thank you to all of our patrons, without whom this show and all of our other shows would not be possible. Uh, if you can afford to be a patron, we would love to have you, and if you can't, and you want to help out the show, leave us a review, leave us a star rating wherever you find the podcast. That really, really helps. Mm. Um, seriously, that helps like a lot. Uh, so, um, yeah, I guess that's it. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?